Yo, yo, what's going on, everybody? Happy Thursday to you. Might be listening to this on a Friday. It's Pete Forsey. It's the podcast, and we got a lot to unpack here. A lot of different things to talk about in regards to the different sports. Blues are headed to the Stanley Cup. St. Louis is, uh, well, they're they're excited. St. Louis Cardinals baseball, on the other hand, they have taken a turn for the worst. Um, however, I think they're going to be all right, and I'll get into that in this show. We also got some NFL to talk about. Ezekiel Elliott, he was in Vegas this week. Also talk about a contract extension for him. Another football player got a contract extension, and he's on track to be a Hall of Famer. He's a New England Patriot. I will get to that. It is episode 18 of the podcast, Football, Baseball, Hockey. Let's get to it. Congratulations to the St. Louis Blues. They are headed to the Stanley Cup Final, taking on the Boston Bruins Memorial Day evening this coming Monday. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch. It's been a lot of fun up until this point. It's had my attention. Hockey isn't always on my radar, um, but they have definitely captivated even me into watching them nightly or every other night when they have their hockey games. It's been a lot of fun. They just finished up against the San Jose Sharks, and it's become clear. The Blues are finally playing their brand of hockey. I think they've always kind of had the talent. It's just the missing piece has always been the goaltender, I believe. They've had good quality goaltending. Jake Allen has been sporadic, especially in the playoffs. He will be hot one game and then collapse the other. They had Brian Elliott. Uh, they had uh, Halak, who, uh, of course, had a great hot streak. I want to say it was four years ago, um, 2015 or so. However, they haven't had it consistently, night in and night out, elite goaltending. They haven't now with Jordan Bennington. 9-12 save percentage against the Sharks. He has remained elite. There's been maybe a little dip from game to game here lately in the series, um, or lately in this series against the Sharks, but ultimately, all things considered, from the moment this stretch started back in January, he's been the same guy night in, night out. He has been elite. And when you combine it with the fact that the Blues have always known their identity, they're very judicious with their shot selection, they're very protective in the neutral zone, and they are going to dump the puck, out-muscle you, and control the puck for the majority of the game. And that's what they've done. Now, early on, they weren't great in the playoffs with their penalty uh, or their power play execution. They weren't that good. That changed against the Sharks 5 for 21. That's a near 24% uh, execution rate. And that's pretty good. That was the difference in this series, I believe. The Sharks weren't as good, and the Blues got their goals off the power play. Prior in Dallas and Winnipeg, they got by, but they weren't executing at the clip that they knew they needed to to keep advancing in this playoffs. The Blues have been doing that. And really, they're getting contributions from everyone. There really hasn't been a weak link from what I can tell. They got young guys who are stepping up and laying the body on people. Sammy Blay, 31 hits. Oscar Sundquist, uh, you know, he's throwing his weight around. And then the usual suspects as well, Tarasenko, uh, Braden Shen. They are muscling up on guys as well. And then Jaden Schwartz turns it on in the playoffs. 12 goals, 19 games. He's been outstanding. But the guy that I think maybe is getting a little bit overhyped, he hasn't been bad, but I think he has cost him in some situations, El Capitan, Alex Petrangelo. I know he's like been one of the best defensemen in the playoffs this year. Uh, you know, he's been around the puck. He's set up some goals. But every time I look up, I feel like he's in the penalty box or getting knocked on his ass. 
Game one, I mean, maybe that's just, you know, the primacy effect there. It's just sticking in my mind. But he had one of the worst takedowns that I've seen so far this playoffs. I mean, he ate snow from, was it Kutre or Carlson? First goal of the series against the Sharks, that was pretty ugly. And then he also had just some silly penalties in my mind. I don't think he's played that well overall um, this past series. Turned it on game five, game six. But I think he's going to have to step up his game against Boston starting Monday night. And it's imperative that the Blues, I think, go 1-1 one and one in this series at a minimum. Obviously, 2-0 and o would be perfect. But if they go down 0-2, that doesn't bode well for them. Because everything that I can tell, everything that I'm reading from, Boston definitely has the more... Uh, they have better scores. They have scores in numbers. And the Blues do not. So if the Blues go down 0-2, and they are forced to get up early in a game three, score a goal early, it's not in their favor necessarily. So I think it's imperative they go 1-1 in Boston at a minimum. But I think they have great shot at doing it. They're the favorites in my mind because they're the one that hasn't shown a weak link. There's not a weakness in their game necessarily. Everybody on their team sees and know their role, and they're executing at a high clip. I really like them. Really like them this series. I think they're going to get it done. I would say if you had to put a a final on it, I would say Blues in six. Blues in six at Enterprise Center. They win their first Stanley Cup in franchise history. Big news out of baseball besides the fact that the Cardinals can't stop walking batters and they are not playing with a lead and there has been a inopportune Execution rate at slugging balls and extra base hits when runners are on base, not taking advantage of traffic on the base paths. Besides that, the biggest news out of baseball has been Christian Stewart, an 18-year-old, is going to go over to Japan on a six-year, $7 million contract, and he's going to forego signing and playing minor league baseball. He was drafted number eight overall with the Braves. And there was a dispute in, uh, or I shouldn't say a dispute, there wasn't an agreement on a contract because the Braves, after he failed their physical because he had uh, wrist damage from a skateboarding accident when he was nine nine years old, according to Christian Stewart, they could not agree to a contract. They wanted to give him $2 million, the assigned slot value for number eight overall in the 2018 draft was approaching $5 million. Christian Stewart did not want to settle. He went to junior college for one year. He's expected to be a second-round pick this next month in June during the uh, during the players' draft. But he says, I'm going to go to Japan. And he is really foregoing, and foregoing some security as far as development, as far as coaching, as far as setup, and just lifestyle. He's going to Japan where he doesn't know the customs, he doesn't know the language, and while it is baseball, it's going to be a different brand of baseball that he's taking on here in a crucial stage. Years 18 to 25 as far as age is concerned for him. I admire and I respect his uh you know, his courageousness, but I don't think this is going to work. I really don't. I know, you know, all the all the talk now is shifting to, is this going to become a thing? You know, if it's a success story, is it going to become a thing? He is a pitcher, after all. So, if it were a hitter, I don't think this would happen at all. There's no way a hitter would go there. It would just, it would not, the risk-reward would not be to their benefit. Pitchers 
of any player that go to Japan are the ones that turn out to be uh, to be okay in the Major League Baseball because that's the whole plan with this thing. He's going to go for six years instead of going to the minor leagues and playing for uh, you know at minimum three years, but then having the six years um, tied to the Major League minimum. He's going to go to Japan and be in, uh, be a potential free agent at age 25 after, after he finishes up six years there. The reason I have doubts with Christian Stewart, however, is because he's going to be playing a different game in Japan. It is more old school. You know, it's not data-driven. It's more of put the ball in play. They, they have a style which they just prescribe to and they prefer to play. It's not so much of, um, you know, maximizing or optimizing your opportunities. It's more of playing a style of play and playing the game in which they prefer. So he's going to have to adapt to that to some degree, and I just don't know if the best interests for Carter Stewart are going to be on the minds of any coaches over there. Now, maybe he's got a plan in place where he's got, you know, a pitching coach that's going to go over there with him or, you know, is going to visit with him periodically. So maybe, you know, there could be some things behind the scenes that I have no idea about, but also just physically. Is he going to be developed in the same way? Pitchers are developed in a certain way now to be bigger and stronger so then they can pitch for shorter stints but at higher effort. And that's not Japanese baseball at all. Japanese baseball is about throwing every single day, never taking a day off, building endurance, building stamina in your arm. And then that way you can pitch longer, go deeper into games, and then also spin the ball better. So in that aspect, I think he could benefit from that learning how to manipulate his pitches better and then therefore manipulate uh, at-bats against batters. So I think that could be beneficial, but it's also just physically, is he going to be on the same standard or the same uh, same bar when he's 25 years old and looking for a contract for Major League Baseball? I just don't know. Not only that, he's 18 years old, learning a new language, new customs, relating to teammates. It's going to be different. I don't know if mentally he's going to be in the best spot. I know at 18, there wouldn't be many people I would know that would be willing to take that risk. Now, he's ultra-talented, obviously number eight overall, so this, again, is a special case. Now, as far as people pointing to examples that, you know, it can happen, it's like, well, okay, take it easy here. Anyone that comes out of Japan is an exception. You Darvish, Masahiro Tanaka, those are the exceptions from the talent that was, you know, originated in Japan. Most of, most of them are not that good. Anyone that goes over there, they've probably already had a taste of Major League Baseball. Miles Michaelis, of course, with the St. Louis Cardinals. This is significant risk. And maybe he flames out because he's not as good as everyone suspects or as the Braves suspected, taking him number eight. Maybe he would flame out in the minor leagues in Major League Baseball as well, or the minor leagues in America, I should say. I admire him. I respect him. This is cool. But physically... From a developmental standpoint, that's where I see the difference. I think he'll learn something about p- pitching that maybe you don't get in Major League Baseball that will be to his benefit, spinning the ball, knowing that batters put a premium on putting the ball in play. He's going to learn to attack hitters better. However, when he's 25 years old and hitters approach at-bats differently, it could also serve as a detriment because he didn't go up through the system of minor league baseball. I'm going to be interested to watch this. He's now set up for life. I can't blame him for that. But I'm going to probably be on the pessimistic side for Christian Stewart. Ezekiel Elliott in Vegas earlier this week, and he was caught on camera for, again, all the wrong reasons. Now, 
isolated. Do I think what was caught on video was a big deal in regards to Zeke Elliott and anything that happens with the league? No, I don't. I don't. I, I think that security guard or whoever that was took a nice little dive there. Took a nice little dive. Didn't really look like there was any uh, physical effort exerted on Zeke's part. As you could see in the video, he kind of rolled his eyes after the guy collapsed to the ground. I think uh, I think he's fine. I don't think he appeared to do anything wrong. Maybe he was jawing a little bit. Um, obviously, he's in Vegas, had a few drinks. He's 23 years old. I, there's nothing really in that incident alone that worries me, but it's more of just the fact Ezekiel Elliott, again, is in the news, and he doesn't really seem to understand the situations that he put himself in. Um, it was reported just days after, uh, might have been earlier that day, uh, Rappaport said that the Cowboys are prepared to make him the highest uh, paid running back in NFL history. Actually, it's coming back to me now. It was Tom P- Pelissero of NFL Network, and you know, this has got to give him cause for pause. They definitely believe in his talent. Zeke is probably the most complete running back in the NFL. As far as all the different runs, inside, outside, pass catching, pass protect, um, he's just dependable. He's physical, takes care of the ball, runs inside, outside again. I mean, probably the most complete back. And he's had the biggest workload since he entered the league three seasons ago. But I'm sure they got to be thinking, Zeke, if we're not getting if we're not getting a reliable guy off the field not that you're a bad guy and i know he had the uh he had the suspension for personal conduct personally i think that was a crock of you know what it was he said she said and the league just took the girl's opinion which wasn't really substantiated all that well if we're just being objective here but the thing with Zeke is that he just doesn't get the optics part of it all. He doesn't get that when he goes into a dispensary in Seattle before a preseason game that that's bad optics. That when he's under investigation for domestic abuse against a woman, he's at a St. Paddy's Day party feeling a girl up right in front of uh, all the cameras on a, on a big-ass float. It's like, Zeke, you can't do that. You can't do that. you got to understand optics. you got to understand that you just... Being in the news for all of this, when it's not, you know, it's not criminal, but it's also just not the best light. You know, being in the news that often, it's not good. It's not good for optics. It makes the team not want to make you the highest paid running back in NFL history, which by my math, if we're going off Gurley's contract, which is what Stephen Jones said, you'll be looking at, I don't know, close to $50 million guaranteed. $50 million guaranteed, probably six years of security that could top out anywhere from like you know, 65 to 73 million. I mean, that's NFL history money that we're talking about. If we're going off Gurley's uh, benchmark there, he got 45 million guaranteed. Bell got 27, Freeman 22 and McCoy uh, 18. But of course that was years ago. I don't know if I'd be in a rush to pay Ezekiel Elliott. I think he's a great football character guy. I think he's complete as far as a player, but they just drafted Tony Pollard fourth round Memphis Seventh round, they took Mike Weber. Maybe they're going to pay Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper first, and then they'll play it out since they, one, have the fifth-year option for Ezekiel Elliott. But they also just kind of got to assess, is this something we really want to do? They built their team around Ezekiel Elliott. Like I said a few weeks ago, it was the perfect confluence of events for them to take him that high in the draft in 2016. The problem is now, 
a contract warrants that he be paid as high as Gurley, pretty much, because he is a focal point of it all. The thing about Ezekiel Elliott is that when he's gone, the offense is very predictable on what the hot reads are on a Cowboys play on any given down. Short on third down, Cole Beasley. No Ezekiel Elliott? Yeah, it's out of the picture. They don't have a committee running back, so when he's off the field, they know that uh, it's going to be suboptimal for the Cowboys to go with any of their running backs on a crucial down. Ezekiel Elliott needs to understand. needs to understand if he wants to get this contract, he's going to have to stop being in the news all the doggone time. I think uh, nothing's been too bad, but nothing's been too good either. He needs to understand optics a little bit better. Julian Edelman has been in the news quite a bit lately. He just graduated from Kent State after 13 years between his final year in college and entering the NFL. And, um, or I shouldn't say 13 years, 10 years. 13 total from when he stepped on campus, I guess is what I'm thinking about. Uh, he was at the Kentucky Derby, living it up uh, with his friends. And then he had his birthday this past Wednesday, I think. Yeah, yesterday. He turned 33 years of age. But before that, he got a contract extension. Two years, $18 million, $12 million guaranteed. The Patriots did him a solid. They gave him a raise after he performed better. They ripped up the old contract, and they rewarded him. Uh, Feel-good story. Hard work, pays off, gets a raise, stays in a place that he's comfortable. Looks like he's going to be staying there till uh, the end of his career, likely at age 35. We'll see if he wants to play past that. But, uh, you know, if everything keeps going good... Uh, everything could be aligned for him to go out uh, a winner, a Super Bowl champion, and a very accomplished player. And it got me thinking, and this was a topic around Super Bowl time because I think it was Boomer Eisen on CBS suggested it, or maybe it was Phil Simms. Is Julian Edelman a Hall of Famer? And I know a lot of people talked about that at that time. I chose not to. I wanted to keep it on the football the football that was in the future, the Super Bowl, the uh, the championship games. I forget when exactly he said it, but it was around that time. But I'll talk about it now. And the answer to it is no, he's not a Hall of Famer. I don't think he's done enough yet, but I certainly think he's on the right track. And if everything's staying equal here, Patriots still being the dominant force that they are in the NFL, still playing in playoff games, still utilizing Edelman at the rate that they do, I think he does end up being a Hall of Famer. And all the people out there, all the people out there suggesting, about ready to throw the numbers at me, total yards, touchdowns, you know, again, I, I will beat anyone over the head with this, that most football statistics are the most arbitrary thing ever. Total receiving yards? Yeah, I, I don't care about that. That is too much of a product of the quarterback, the scheme, the system that they're running. And I also don't agree with the notion that if a pass is thrown further, therefore forcing a receiver to travel further, farther, whichever is correct, it doesn't make it more difficult. It really doesn't. I can argue that a third and four from the slot against a quick twitch cornerback during the playoffs or during any game, third and four, where it forces nuanced footwork, quickness, separation, and then you have to catch the football while a defender closes in on you, is more difficult than a long pass, than an 80-yard bomb that you have to catch. But for some reason, you know, total yards, 
That's all the rage. Julian Edelman isn't a Hall of Famer yet. I think he's well on his way to be. He is the most accomplished slot receiver probably since it became a fully utilized position. Short, intermediate game. It needs to be judged differently. It needs to be judged differently. He is as tough, as dependable a receiver. All the option routes, that's what uh, the Patriots utilize against the Rams, was just the Edelman-Brady connection. Why? Because it's dependable. It's an intangible thing. Both of them trust each other that they're reading the defense correctly in a split-second decision. Julian Edelman is as tough as they come, dependable as they come. I think, while he is second in receptions in the playoffs, I think he has to do a little bit more as far as um, just playing because he didn't become a regular until 2013. He had been on the field prior to that. I remember 2011, I just watched the... uh, the replay of the Giants-Patriots Super Bowl a couple weekends ago. It was actually Mother's Day. I was watching that, and, uh, you know, he was on special teams, and he was just returning kicks. He didn't become a regular until Welker departed. Uh, So I just think he has a little bit more to do, just a little bit more duration, but he's well on his track to becoming a Hall of Famer. And if anyone says otherwise, it's antiquated thinking. I remember 2012. South Carolina game. I believe they were playing... I think it was their rival, Clemson, at the time. Marcus Lattimore went down, and he didn't get back up because he knew exactly what had happened. His knee was destroyed, and Marcus Lattimore was never the same. He was one of the top running back prospects at the time in 2012 to get drafted, and he got drafted pretty high, except it didn't happen. He went undrafted. He went to San Francisco, and he rehabbed. And he got better, and his coaches said he looked good. But on the inside, he described his feeling as tears. He said he was in so much pain that he knew he had to retire. And now Marcus Lattimore is out of football, not sure what he's doing, but a promising career never even got started. And I think that's what we kind of have here with Reuben Foster. Reuben Foster has become a sports tragedy. Now, his his life's not over. It's not that he's lost anything, so to speak, as far as um, money or relationships. Uh, well, maybe if we're getting really specific. But um, his football career isn't serious doubt. Artery damage to your knee, not good. Not good. Non-contact injury. Reuben Foster has dealt with so much in just a very short amount of time in the NFL and I I feel bad I felt bad for him even before this because as I talked earlier on this podcast he's he was painted in a very bad uh I shouldn't say he was painted he was he, he was just put in a very bad light from his old partner his old girlfriend and the media just jumped at it again not doing their due diligence just assuming taking perception as reality Perception's cheap. That's why people buy it. Reality sometimes comes at a cost. Sometimes it comes at a cost of effort. And even the media doesn't choose to do its due diligence. Doesn't choose to go the hard way. Both Reuben Foster, that's what it required. And I think, you know, his reputation is taking a hit for it because 
the casual person probably just thinks that he's a criminal, uh, that he's disrespectful to women. And, you know, I, I think he's misperceived a little bit. I think he is. Um, do I think he has good judgment? No, I do not. He doesn't know that he needs to uh, abide by the gun laws once he changes states. Uh, he doesn't seem to understand that marijuana is illegal for his job and that it will cost him paychecks and his team will be upset with him. And he doesn't really know what company to keep. It's He just puts himself in bad spots. Um, similar to Ezekiel Elliott, just, but not entirely the same. Uh, I feel bad for him, though, because he's not a criminal. Um, doesn't sound like he's just a, a, a mean guy. Uh, and he's uber talented. You know, I loved watching him. I thought he had a chance to be a, among the top players uh, linebackers in the game up there with Kukli, uh, up there with Wagner. Um, he had that type of talent to take it to that kind of level. And it's sad because it seems like his career is going to be over. This is a knee injury that even if he comes back from his ceiling has now lowered significantly, uh, sad deal for Reuben Foster. If he doesn't make it back, this does go down as somewhat of a football tragedy. One thing I want to hit on and, uh, Somewhat, he's been in the news a little bit here recently because of the Jets' job, is Peyton Manning. I never thought it was serious. It wasn't serious. It sounds like it was a report just thrown out there. And then Rap Sheet, who's a little bit more credible, um, you know, he, he put that to bed and said, yeah, that's not happening. I, I don't... If the Jets had interest and they went to Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning would probably just laugh. He would laugh and say, I'm not going to this dysfunctional... Uh, bright light where I have to answer to Chris freaking Johnson, possibly Woody here in a few years if he comes uh, back over from overseas. He goes, I'm not going into a situation like that. Like, I'm Peyton fucking Manning. I'm going to have some stakes in this deal. I'm going to have some uh, pretty significant control. I'm not going to be looking over my shoulder. And the thing about Peyton Manning, if we can remember from his playing days... It's not like he has this joyfulness to him, even playing, which is why I never thought he would be a TV guy. TV is so skewed towards like enthusiasm and showing emotion because that's what you know people eat up that I never thought he was going to go to Monday Night Football. It's not like I see Peyton Manning having such pleasure just watching a football game. Peyton Manning would be going nuts up there if he saw something out on the field and he couldn't do anything about it. That's why Peyton Manning isn't going to do a color commentator, I don't think. It's not like Tony Romo. Tony Romo just gets joy of watching. He's excited just like all of us watching the game. Peyton Manning wants control. Remember Peyton Manning after touchdowns? What did he do? He would go immediately off the field and then he would go look at the uh, look at the pictures. Because, of course, you can't look at the film. He would look at the pictures. He would start scripting with his offensive coordinator what they need to do on the next drive. He's a process guy. He's a process guy. He's a strategic guy. I wouldn't say philosophical necessarily, but he's into building, and that's what a team is. I think he's going to land a job as a president of football ops or general manager, but it's going to be on his terms. So going to be on his terms. He's not going to just waltz into any any job. He's going to wait until there's a quarterback that he thinks is uh, stable. Something that gives him a nice foundation. And then he's going to look at the owner. I wouldn't see, be surprised if he's waiting to see what happens with the Colts. Chris Ballard, he's been great. He's been great thus far. But we say that about a lot of general managers that have success out of the gate. I'm sure he's waiting to see, okay, let's, let's make sure that he's a, a mainstay there. 
Because if it's not, I'm sure Jim Irsay would uh, have Peyton in a heartbeat. Tennessee, uh, Amy Strunk, she's the owner over there. He obviously has ties to Tennessee. I'm surprised, uh, or I'm not surprised. I'm sure he's waiting to see what happens with John Robinson. Pretty crucial year for John Robinson. He's acquired a lot of great players, but the performance hasn't necessarily been there on the field. I'm sure he might be seeing and waiting what goes on there. Peyton's going to be running the team here soon. He's going to have the the clout. He's going to have the benefit of a John Elway. Now, obviously, he's not going to... He has ties to the Broncos. He's never going to have that job because John Elway is there. But I think that's the situation he's going to go into. I honestly think he's looking at the two places that have always been rumored, Titans-Colts, and there's no rush. There's no rush to get back in the game. He's Peyton Manning. He's got uh, you know years and years of football that will still serve him well. It's not like he's going to lose any... He's not going to lose too much touch from being out of the game for a few years. I think Peyton Manning's going to do a good job once he gets his shot, but being smart... Just like he was on the field, he's waiting for the right decision. The New York Jets, <laughs> that's just even a laughable thing to think about. Enjoy the holiday weekend, everyone. I know I will. I cannot wait for Monday. I cannot wait to sit down and watch the hockey game. Between then, of course, be checking out baseball, looking at the Cardinals. Look, I'm not too worried like a lot of people are about the Cardinals. Their hitting's going to get going. They have all the peripherals that they, you want. They just got to start slugging at the right time, and that's something that's going to even out. I do have concerns about the pitching. I told you a few weeks back, they walked too many guys. They put themselves in disfavorable counts, and now it's catching up to them. I think there needs to be a little bit of a shakeup. John Gant to the rotation should not be ruled out. I know people then say, well, what are you going to do with the middle relief? Middle relief should not be a priority. Your best pitchers should pitch the most, okay? John Gant, I would seriously consider flip-flopping him and Michael Waka. Miles um, Michael has got to pick it up. That contract is looking to be maybe a little, uh, little too soon, that contract extension earlier this spring. Okay, Dakota Hudson, I like him a lot. I think things even out. You look at his numbers overall, they don't look great. But if you throw out Milwaukee, which Milwaukee happened, I get it. If you throw out Milwaukee, he's actually done pretty doggone solid, okay? He's going to get his chance against Milwaukee to to right that ship. But overall, Cardinals pitching just need to shake up. I don't think we need to switch names necessarily. I'd like to see John Gant enter the rotation. Michael Waka, get his command back, stretch him out a couple innings, get the confidence back going. St. Louis Cardinals are going to get going and back in the right direction, I think. Until next time, enjoy the holiday weekend. Enjoy the Stanley Cup. Enjoy the Cardinals baseball. We'll see you next week.